Well, Happy New Year to all of you. Welcome to 2021. I have to say, in all of my years, I've never lived through a year that we made fun of it while we were living through it. Usually it's in the past, like we make fun of the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s, but there were so many jokes about 2020 that I caught myself saying things like, after every cancellation, well, that's it's just 2020. Like, it's just one more thing to expect. This past week, I saw a meme that someone in the church was passing around on Facebook that I thought was rather funny about 2020. It said, the most foolish thing I did this year was I bought a planner. After all, everything got canceled. I got so bored, I called Jake from State Farm and asked what he was wearing. 2020 did what no woman could ever do, cancel sports, close the bars, and get men to stay at home. And then my personal favorite was this one. I never imagined in a million years that I would feel perfectly comfortable walking into a bank with a mask on and asking the cashier for money. The first couple of times, I was a little awkward, but then eventually, it's like, yeah, this is okay. We can do this. And they're like, man, I would have never done this. There's been some funny things about 2020, but there's been a lot that's been hard. In March, the virus came out, started making community spread, and everything quickly locked down. Shortly after that, our country erupted in concerns over racial issues. We had disagreements about how to respond. Then to top it all off, it was an election year, which adds its other sense of division to what's going on. And as we turn the page to January 2021, it'd be nice to say all those things in 2020 just disappear. But all of them are, are still with us. And so as we enter 2021, there's a shadow. There's a shadow of all the things that we struggled with in 2020. There's a shadow hanging over us. We still have to deal with all those things. And the character that was required of us in 2020, the sacrifices, the commitment, the desire to persevere, to strive for unity, all those things continue with us into this new year. They don't just stop because December 2020 came and magically things got better. And so as we enter this new year, might feel a lot like the old year. And yet the call of God to us will be very much the same. Today we're going to see in the book of Hebrews that we're called to do several things. We're called to galvanize ourselves for the race ahead. It could be a long year. I hope it's not. But we're also called to strive for unity, for peace, strive for holiness, and not forsake the opportunity to repent as that window of opportunity is offered to us today. So take your Bibles in the pew, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll be starting in verse 12, I'll have it up here on the screen. And as we start, I want to just give you some background to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of people that have suffered some hardship for the sake of the gospel. And some of them seem to be wrestling with the fact, like, I'm not sure it's worth it. I mean, they're beginning to wonder, is it worth the cost? It might have been persecution, it might have been hardship, but they seem most in danger of going back to Judaism. There's a lot of imagery in, the old, in Hebrews about the sacrifices and, the, and priesthood, and suggest that they were thinking, well, this, this Christianity is costing me a lot, maybe I can just drop back and, and, and just follow the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 stay with Jesus. He's better. 
And so in the midst of their hardships, in the midst of their questions about, is it worth it? He's saying, yes, it is every bit worth it. And today you might be asking that same question. Is it worth taking the high road and following Jesus in 2021? Our author would say, yes, it is. The other piece of background is early in the chapter, the authors compared the Christian life to a race. And so we're going to see a lot of running imagery, a lot of running verbs that come into this passage because it's like a marathon. And it's going to feel like a marathon for you and I, I believe, as we go into 2021, as the shadow of 2020 hangs with us. We're running for the long haul. So this passage, I believe, speaks to us and where we might find ourselves today. So go ahead and, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. And as we're going to see, the first call is that we should galvanize ourselves, to strengthen ourselves and each other to go the distance in 2021. So here's what the author writes. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I don't like running long distances. I get weary very fast. And so this image of having the, the, the dropping hands and the, the weak knees, I experience that when I run very far. You might be feeling like that today. You're tired of masking. You're tired of the discussions over race or politics. You might just feel like, ah, I just, I just want to collapse. But the finish line's not here yet. And so the author is writing to his readers saying, Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Persevere to the end. Sometimes you have to reach down deep and, and find that extra energy. And here, that strength must come from the Lord to persevere to the end. He's called us to live in this time. He can strengthen you to live through it. Now this command is, is, a, is a plural. So there is a, a sense in which we need to attend to ourselves to say, strengthen yourself to the degree that you are able but then also look to the runners next to you. You also need to strengthen them. Encourage them. And so looking around the room, maybe take a, take a look at, at who's not here, who's not been in community, who might need an encouraging word. A lot of folks in our church right now are grieving. They're mourning losses. And this is a place where we can look around and say, who needs a word of encouragement? Who needs help? to keep going. I was overwhelmed this week as I looked at the prayer letter of just how many people have been losing people in their family, how many people are sick in the hospital. The list was longer than, I, than I'm usually accustomed to. And it just hit me of how, how much we're struggling right now as a church. And this is a time to look around and say, whose hand can I pick up? Could I loan a brace to somebody so they could strengthen their knees and finish the race? So our author here says, galvanize yourself to finish the race, to stay strong through the hard times. And then he says, straighten the path, make, make straight paths. In scripture, whenever it talks about straight paths, it often means to walk the straight and narrow. It's not how we live ourselves morally. Do we submit to God and his expectations of us? When you're running for a long time, I don't know about you, but I start to stagger. My, my, my steps aren't as strong, and I'm more likely to hit an uneven surface and roll my ankle or injure myself. And this is exactly what the author is pointing out, saying when, when you get weary is when you're most likely to hurt yourself. And so instead of risking those injuries, 
Straighten the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is where we need to come alongside of each other. Help us run healthily to the end. Binding up those who are wounded, binding up those who are discouraged so that we can persevere to the very end. So we're called, first of all, to galvanize ourselves to go the distance in this year. And it's going to need input from each other to do that. The second thing our author says that we're supposed to do is to strive for peace. So while we're running this race, running this marathon, what we're running to, the destination is to be peace. He says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So he says we should strive for peace. And this is, again, a running term. It's pushing into that energy, saying, I've got to get to the finish line. I've got to get this. Striving for peace. And it says peace with everyone. Not just those who are easy to get along with. That's how I like it to read. Just those who are easygoing. No, it's with everyone, striving for peace. There's not a guarantee that you're going to get peace with everybody. Our passage seems to be aware of that. It's the pursuit of peace without a guarantee that you're going to get it every time. But if you don't strive for it, you usually will never get peace. And so it calls us to strive for this peace, to, to race as hard as you can to get it. Let's be honest, our culture does not prime us for that. The news cycles like to give us where division is. They show us where we're divided. The news, the podcasts, the pundits can give us ammo to keep feeding the divisiveness in our culture, gives us ways of arguing for our perspective, but it doesn't help us figure out how do we contend for peace with those who are in disagreement with us? How do we pursue unity in the midst of all these divisions that we've had over things like COVID, race, and politics? How do we pursue peace? We're trained for the opposite in our culture, not for peace. And yet our author would call us to strive for this very thing called peace. It sounds similar to what Jesus once said to his followers in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're supposed to be happy, and why? For they shall be called the sons of God. Why would they be God's sons? Because God is a peacemaker. God in heaven decided to make peace with you and me and sent his son to do that. And if God's willing to make peace with us sinners who have been his enemies, then God is going to call his own children to do the exact same thing that he's done. So we are called to be peacemakers, to strive for that peace. It is difficult. It's often not attained in this world. One example that I can point to that other people have pointed to as being an attempt at this that has succeeded in some, some measure has been the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Before the 1990s, South Africa had strong apartheid government, which basically kept the wealth in the land in a small white minority and disenfranchised the majority blacks in, in the country. And before apartheid was dismantled in the 1990s, 
People like Desmond Tutu and others were strong vocal critics of those policies. Well, when Nelson Mandela came into power, they dismantled some of those policies, and then they set up this interesting thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission went and investigated different accounts of crimes that were committed under apartheid. And here were the rules. If you told the truth, and told the entirety of the truth of what you had done, you were granted amnesty. But if you didn't tell the truth, they could come and prosecute you for those crimes. So you can imagine being on the, the oppressed side beforehand, having been pushed out of, of owning land, owning power, all those kinds of things, and all of a sudden, you're put in charge. And Desmond Tutu was put in charge of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It'd be easy to try to exact revenge, to retaliate, to do unto others that had been done to you. And instead, some of those families, as they heard the story of how their parents perhaps had been murdered or been brutalized, those criminals were allowed to go free. That was hard. But it has set up a place where people in South Africa were able to forgive because the truth was in the open. The actual account of what had happened was out. And it has brought some peace. I'm not saying it's brought perfect peace. South Africa still has problems that it wrestles with to this day. But by telling the truth, it opened the possibility of forgiveness. That the families who had lost loved ones could then turn and forgive the perpetrators. And people who are trying to broker peace today often look at this as saying this, this was a success. It wasn't necessarily a planned success, but success nonetheless. And it's interesting that it, it mirrors the gospel in a certain way. You come and admit the truth of what you had done, and you're no longer held accountable. You're no longer able to be prosecuted for those crimes. Now, here's where the gospel is so much better, though. Because we are called to come and confess our sins. But what we're granted is not amnesty. Amnesty just means you're off the hook. What we're given in the gospel is so much better than that. It's the person who holds the heavenly riches in his hands, says, I want to share that with you. You've been estranged from me. I want to bring you into my family. I want to adopt you as my children and share with you the wealth of what I have. The gospel is so much better than this. And God invites us through his practice of peacemaking to be little peacemakers here. And one of the ways we can pursue this peace is by attending to bitterness. Verse 15 says this, See that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. See that no root of bitterness springs up. It's wintertime, so I'm going to remind you, as you look outside, I know it's dreary and you've had snow. Just remember, when spring comes, these little beautiful flowers come with it, right? So dandelion, some of you spend all of your spring and summer trying to get these pesky things out of your yard. But dandelions are interesting because they put down this deep taproot. And when you go to pull it, if you, if you don't get enough of the leaves and you don't have enough of the, the ground loosened up, what happens? It snaps off. And then guess what? The weed's still there. Oh, my goodness. It's still stuck in the ground, and it's going to put new shoots up and put the beautiful seed pot out there to blow everywhere else. Bitterness is like that. 
it sends little roots into our hearts. And we might be able to pull off the leaves, namely bite our tongues once in a while. But it stays there. It, it lodges and it can quickly sow seeds just as fast as a dandelion can sow seeds and repopulate a yard. Bitterness can do the same kind of thing. In this season of 2020, we've had a lot to disagree about. We've had the virus, we've had race, we've got the election. And if we're not careful, our disagreements, which have been passionate at times, can sow roots that lodge within us. So those of us, and sometimes these, these, these words lodge in us Sometimes we're from a conversation where it's, it's direct. Sometimes we just hear people discussing and, and we just take it in. It's like, oh, everyone thinks that about me. So perhaps we've taken a, a carefree approach to the virus. We've heard other people say, well, you're not living out of faith or you're, you're scared to die. On the other hand, perhaps someone's taking a carefree approach and others are looking over and saying, well, you're just making all Christians look bad. And so what happens, those little, those little statements we catch them, and suddenly they lodge in our hearts, and they send these deep tap roots down. And part of how we pursue peace right now is tending to those, to forgive others. It might require some hard conversations of going to people and saying, hey, you said this, and whether you intended it or not, I stored that up, and it festered. I want to let you know I forgive you. It's going to require us to do some digging, some weeding of those roots of bitterness. If we're going to strive for peace, we must do that. And so our author has called us to galvanize ourselves for the race, to strive for peace, but he also says strive for holiness. So it's strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, while we're running this race of 2021, the two things we're running for are, one, peace, and then two, holiness. And he says here, this is the holiness without which one cannot see the Lord. Now, as I wrestled with this passage, there was a question in my mind of, is, is this our positional holiness, that we are holy before God, we're his people, we've been forgiven, or is this our practical holiness, how we live out our lives. And I think the answer that I came to is that it's, it's both. He wants us to strive to have both, both that we would be found in God, if, if for those of us who are not Christians, who have not followed Jesus, that we would say, I want to commit to following him, I want to repent and be a part of his people. And then those of us who are Christians, there's been plenty in this passage before this about laying aside the sin that besets us, that holds us back from this race. And so the holiness in the context seems to be both. Committing to, coming to be God's people, but then also living that out in our daily lives. To strive for it. 2020 has brought a lot of interesting topics that I never thought I would research on. We've quickly become experts on coronavirus transmission rates, the effectiveness of wearing masks. Um, we've, been, we've become experts on you know, the actual death rate for COVID. We've become experts on social inequities and how much of that translates back to the antebellum United States or postbellum policies. We've become experts on critical race theory and the origins of it. 
We've become experts on the Electoral College. We've become experts on the Vice President's role in certifying the Electoral College results. That might come out on, I think, Wednesday. We've become experts about a lot of different things. Have we poured the same amount of energy and time and passion into being holy? Holiness is that part of God's character that sets him apart. That says, I'm distinct. It's that purity of life that doesn't have ulterior motives behind it. It's that purity that is genuine and pure and holy. And we're called to pursue that, to strive with everything we've got for that. And I'll be honest with you, when I look over 2020, I spent a lot of time researching a lot of other things. But I did not spend as much time thinking about, well, where's pride in my life? Where's, where's jealousy taking a root? How about my greed? Holiness requires us to be attentive to our souls. To watch how we respond, what, what's, what's really motivating those dis disagreements. How we respond. Holiness would have us pursue after that purity of life that resembles God's own character. Elsewhere, God says, be holy because I am holy, or be holy as I am holy. We are called to a distinct kind of life as Christians. And the author of Hebrews would say, strive for this, persevere, push into that struggle to attain that kind of life. Now, one of the ways we're supposed to pursue that is through the sexual purity. So verse 15 says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And then note verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral. Part of being holy is to have sexual purity, to pursue that as well. And our culture carries a double-edged sword on this. On the one hand, it would say if you restrict any kind of sexual desire, you are sinning against human nature. On the other hand, they also call sin out on this. The Harvey Weinsteins and others who fail in this area are called to account. And it's not just secular leaders, it's also Christian leaders. The past few months, we've had several exposed for failing on this front. We have Carl Lentz's, we've got even Ravi Zacharias. And the sadness that that brings the community of faith that has been influenced by them, been discipled by them, it's sad. It causes all kinds of questions when people see a leader that they've followed who's no longer walking in the purity of, of, of life. It damages the witness of the faith. And so even though our culture no longer values sexual purity, we in the church are called to walk holy and blameless lives following Christ in this year. We've, we've seen that we've been called to galvanize ourselves for the long distance ahead, strive for peace, strive for holiness, and then finally, repent. Repent rather than sell out during a difficult season. The example brought up here at the end of the passage is that of Esau. So verse 17 says this, For you know that afterward, I'm sorry, back up to 16. 
See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So what's so bad about Esau? Who sold his birthright for a single meal. So Taylor talked about this last week. I won't belabor it. But Esau comes in and I get it. He's hungry. He's been out hunting all day. He's famished. <sighs> He's hungry. We have, I, in our house, we call it hangry. You know, you're hungry and you're angry. He's like, ah, life is horrible. So he comes in and Jacob's over there thinking, hmm. Good deal on the table. I like this. Here's some porridge for you. Just give me your birthright. Now, my understanding of the birthright is that this includes not just the family stuff, but also the share in the covenant family. That God's promise to bless Abraham's family and the world through Abraham's family. Esau's looking at that and saying, nah, not a big deal. And so part of selling out that birthright is saying, I don't care about being about God's people. I don't have to be a member of them. I would rather have my belly filled right now in this instant than any future participation in God's blessing to the world. Now, there's another part of that where he tries to go in and get blessed by his father and then Jacob steals that blessing from him, deceiving his father. Our author doesn't get into all of that. But what it does say in the verse 17, for you know that afterward, this is after the second encounter, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So later, when Esau did want to share in that blessing, it was too late. He had made a choice in a moment of desperation, a moment when it felt like, ah, oh, I'm just hungry, I just want food in me. He sold out. And so our author is looking at those in his audience, those who would be reading this letter, and saying, you might be in a hard patch. You might be in a difficult patch. In 2020, 2021, that sounds like a hard patch to me. And some of you might be thinking, maybe I just give it up. Maybe walking this life of holiness is too difficult. It's too hard. Maybe I should just sell out. And our author would say, no, this is not the time to do that. Remember Esau. Because at some point, it became far too late. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, I want to follow Christ, but first I want to live a life of sin. First I want to enjoy my wild, sowing my wild oats. And then, when I get older, I'll, I'll repent. Our author would, would remind you that there comes a point in time when it's too late. This past week, a congressman-elect died of COVID. He wasn't much older than me. And while you're looking at the stats and thinking, oh, he's 41, he should be able to live through this, he didn't. We never know when the end is for us. The window of opportunity for repentance is today. And he's calling on the readers, the listeners to this letter to say, don't wait. Don't be like Esau, crying afterwards, saying, I wish I would have done this when I had a chance. So if you're on the outside looking in today, and outside of the Christian community looking in, don't wait. Today's a day of repentance. At the same time, those of you who are Christians can sometimes act like, well, I've repented back there. I don't need to keep on doing this thing. As if we don't sin, we don't struggle pursuing holiness. There's still a place for you and I to look at ourselves and say, Lord, where, where am I still growing in this holiness that you call me to? And to repent, to say, Lord, I, I'm, I'm still a sinner. 
I still need your grace. Repentance is a way of life for the Christian. And again, there's no better day to do that than today. So I don't know how you're feeling today. You might be like our first verses where you're feeling like your hands are drooping, your, your knees are, are sagging. But our author encourages us, lift up the drooping hands, strengthen the weak knees, strive for peace, do the hard work of rooting out bitterness, weeding it out in your relationships, in your care groups, in the church. Strive for holiness, take an honest account of your life and of your soul. Where are you really? Let the Holy Spirit sift you. And whatever you discover, repent. Take that to him. He is one who forgives our sins and who welcomes us into his family. What can help us persevere like this? Part of what helps us persevering like this is to remember what Christ has done. So while the author calls us to persevere in our hard season of life, just remember that Jesus only calls you to do what he's already done. And early in the chapter, our author had pointed us to Jesus. He wrote this. He said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So he endured the cross for you and me. I don't know where you are today. You could be mourning a loss. You could be struggling with health. I'm not sure what your cross today is. But Christ endured his. And he despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hallelujah. So today we're going to go to the communion table. And as we do... Wherever you find yourself, remember that Christ has already gone through and endured the hardship so that you and I can be accepted as his children.